hey, there's a show you might want to know about. Now in its tenth season, Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a podcast about tragedy, triumph, unequal justice, and actual innocence. Based on the files of the lawyers who represent them, together with other criminal justice activists and experts, Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom features interviews with men and women who have spent years in prison for crimes they did not commit, some of them having even been sentenced to death. These are their stories. Look for Wrongful Conviction wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, listen, truthfully, uh, the average uh, Negro don't know such a thing as depression. Because from the day he was born, he was born in depression. As far as uh, a job was concerned, uh, the best he could get would be a job, uh, like I say, driving team or working in a coal yard, working in some factory. Uh, if he was in a factory, he was a janitor or the porter, which didn't pay much. So you can understand very clearly why uh, no such a thing as a depression really meant too much to him. Clifford Burke, then a retired transit worker from Chicago, spoke with the radio broadcaster Studs Terkel around 1970. Burke said, looking back, the people who really couldn't cope with the Great Depression were white folks. Uh, you take a fellow had a job, say, paying him $60 a week, and here I'm making 20 No. If I go home and take some beans or anything home, my wife, she'll fix that. We'll sit down and we'll eat it. It isn't exactly what we want, but we'll eat it. But this white fellow that's been making this big money, and he go bring this home, his wife isn't going to accept this. Why did these fellows, all these big wheels, why did they kill themselves? The American uh, white man has been superior so long. Uh, he couldn't stand the idea of being defeated, see? Uh, and when I say defeated, he couldn't stand the idea of having to go on relief like the Negro had to go. You see, that was the difference in the Depression. It wasn't only not me, but it was not you, and it was not my friends and everybody else. Elsa Poncel. She tells Turkle the Depression wasn't about a few suffering people feeling marginalized. Almost everyone felt the effects, even the few who were truly comfortable. And the rich had the... Uh, instinct of self-preservation. They didn't throw that, uh, the fact that they had money around, if you remember. We heard about how they didn't have the fancy debutante parties, because after all, it was not the thing to do. discreet about it. Indeed. They were so goddamn scared they'd have a revolution. They damn near did, too, didn't they? <laughs> you felt that. Hey, Chenjirai. Hey, John. So we are moving into the 20th century now, getting closer to our present day. Um, I just want to say, though, that despite what some people might think, I personally do not have memories of the Great Depression. <laughs> you didn't live through that, huh? <laughs> uh, I am older than you, I think a decade or so, but uh, I'm not 50 years older. I just Let's be clear. Right. Yeah. I mean, I feel you, man. I mean, shoot, things are changing for me, too. Now I'm getting a couple gray hairs. When I talk about labor struggles, you know, in the, in the early 20th century, I think my students think I'm giving like a firsthand account, you know, They're like, why are you so excited? Were you there? You know, and, and I say that because, you know, I think it's really hard for those of us who did not live through the Great Depression to wrap our minds around what it was like, really, just how deep the desperation was and how widespread, how many people were suffering. Yeah, I mean, we lived through the Great Recession that really hit in 2008, and that caused a lot of pain. You know, people lost jobs, a lot of wealth got stolen. You know, people, a lot of people haven't recovered from that, but it still doesn't feel as extreme as the Great Depression. I don't think it really comes close. Um, you know, just one comparison, in 2009, the unemployment rate um, hit a high of 10% and then started to drop again. That seemed mm. pretty rough. Well, in the 30s, the national unemployment rate was well over double that. And there mm. were cities that where, the, where the unemployment rate was 80 or 90%, right? Basic, just basically nobody has a job. And and besides the unemployment, there were you know, a lot of people who did have work, had their hours cut or their wages cut, 
and people couldn't make ends meet, and and it lasted for close to a decade. I mean, there was hardly any safety net back then either, right? Yeah. Government support for poor people has always been weak in the U.S. compared to other rich countries. But when a depression hit, it was it was almost non-existent. There's no unemployment insurance, no food stamps, no real support for farmers. Banks were allowed to fail, uh, and there was no federal deposit insurance, so people lost the money that they'd put in the bank. I mean, millions of people lost everything. Mm. And uh, there were lots of people literally out living in cardboard boxes or shanties in these Hoovervilles, as they were called, standing in lines for food, just trying to survive. Yeah. So everybody gets it, right? It was bad. <laughs> Here's just one more clip. This is Peggy Terry. She was a migrant farm worker uh, talking decades later with Stutz Turkle. And it's really hard to to talk about the depression because what can you say except you were hungry and I mean, it's hard to make that sound like anything you know in episode four we talked about how crisis like the civil war create openings for people who have transformative ideas yeah and hearing this is i just think man when people are hungry for food they also get hungry for real change that's going to last so by the time we get to the Great Depression, people have been arguing for profound change for a while. And now people who might be called radicals are actually finding audiences much more receptive because of that desperation. So you already had people like Lucy Parsons, Du Bois, Hubert Harrison. I mean, just black folks who are openly critical of capitalism. But now you also have artists like Claude McKay, Langston Hughes, Paul Robeson, people like Louise Thompson Patterson. I mean, they're all making the case that for America to achieve democracy, power and resources are going to have to be changed in fundamental ways. Yeah. You even had socialists like Norman Thomas who brought their case directly into the White House. There was a lot of energy out there like that. And then, but shockingly, the most powerful people in the country, for the most part, were not feeling that. <laughs> yeah, right. They tended to say, even those who were in favor of really doing something mm-hmm. would would argue, now nah, we need a pragmatic approach. We sure don't need or want a revolution of any sort. See, but this is what I'm saying. You know, it's like, you know, you're in the Great Depression and people are arguing against revolution. It's like <laughs> we, we're used to talking about these political fights as just different philosophies, left and right, you know, or center or something. Right. Fighting it out in the marketplace of ideas. Yeah. And, you know, what bothers me is it's like no matter how reactionary the idea is, is somehow we need all these ideas because somehow they're all in service of democracy. (laughs) But what if that's not right? You know, like when we look at these periods of crisis and transition, like the Great Depression, how do we really cut through and see who was really working in service of democracy versus who was just using the language of democracy to get back to business as usual. From the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University, this is season four of Seen on Radio, episode six in our series exploring democracy in the U.S., past and present. We call the series The Land That Never Has Been Yet. I'm John Bewin. You were just hearing from my friend and colleague, Dr. Chenjirai Kumanyika. He teaches journalism and media studies at Rutgers University. He's an organizer, a podcaster, and an artist. Chenjirai will be back later in the episode to help me make sense of things. This time out, the New Deal. What was its impact on democracy in the U.S.? How did it change the role of government and the ability of regular people to have a say in their lives? as citizens, and especially as workers. And what did the New Deal not achieve, democracy-wise? My friends of the Democratic National Convention of 1932. When he accepts the nomination that summer in Chicago, Franklin Delano Roosevelt utters a phrase that will stick. I pledge myself to a new deal for the American people. As he wraps up his speech, Roosevelt builds to this crescendo. This is more than a political campaign. 
It is a call to arms. Give me your help not to win votes alone, but to win in this crusade to restore America to its own people. By restoring America to its own people, Roosevelt did not mean returning the land to Native Americans. I know, you knew that. Just had to point it out. That November, FDR wins in a landslide, retiring the Republican President Herbert Hoover after one term. Three grim years have passed since the stock market crash of 1929. In fact, as Roosevelt takes office in March 1933, the bottom is dropping out like never before. The economy is in a catastrophic state. Uh, it's a worldwide depression. It's afflicted not only the United States, but essentially the whole of the industrialized world, and to a considerable degree, some of the developing world as well. Historian Eric Rauschway of the University of California, Davis. He's written several books on the Depression and the New Deal, Rauschway says Hoover had run as a pro-business Republican, and his administration took only meager steps to address the economic collapse. Mostly, Hoover urged people not to panic, and he looked for the solution in private enterprise. He called on corporations to buck up, to avoid cutting wages or laying people off. Hoover's instincts were to marshal the goodwill and cooperative impulse and what he understood to be the self-interest of American business people to try to pull together and meet the crisis on their own. Uh, this didn't work. By electing FDR, the American people sent a clear message. Promises from the business community weren't going to cut it this time. They wanted government to do more, and a lot of them wanted real, lasting change. More political and economic equality. Actually, Americans had been saying that for a few decades. Let's back up a little. Historians call the period from the 1890s to the 1920s the Progressive Era, a time when candidates could win elections by responding to the strong public pressure for reform. Leaders like Theodore Roosevelt, FDR's older fifth cousin, who was governor of New York, then president from 1901 to 1909. The Republican Party for the first decade or so of the 20th century is the national home of what becomes known as progressivism and uh, stands for not overthrowing the capitalist order or the industrialist order, but regulating it in some semblance of the public interest. And of course, there's a big row, or in fact, there are a series of rows over what the public interest might be. But there is this generalized notion for which uh, Theodore Roosevelt is an articulate spokesperson, that uh, the economy ought to be bent to serve uh, ordinary citizens. Eric says the progressive label was so popular that just about everybody claimed it in one way or another, from the socialist activist and labor organizer Eugene Debs to quite conservative presidents like William Taft and Woodrow Wilson. Alongside the push for progress and reform, the early 20th century was also a time of rampant and violent white supremacy, eugenics, nationalism, and colonialism. Not to mention the prohibition of intoxicating liquors, passed in 1920. All were championed by people who called themselves progressive. There's a lot of vying for the progressive label in that period. But the era did bring real innovations, political and economic. Election of the U.S. Senate by the people instead of state legislatures. That was the 17th Amendment ratified in 1913. And after the extreme inequality of the Gilded Age, there was pressure to have corporations and rich people contribute more to society. One answer was the income tax in 1913, and the first antitrust and anti-monopoly laws to stop corporations from gouging consumers. In the first couple decades of the 20th century, the labor movement fought for and mostly achieved an eight-hour workday and workers' compensation laws. Then in 1920, woman suffrage, the 19th Amendment, a victory for women, well, mostly white women, after generations of fighting. By the end of the teens, though, 
World War I had brought not only terrible carnage, but also economic growth in the U.S. With the end of the war, says Rauschway, leaders of the Republican Party basically looked at each other and said, enough progressivism. And so by the time you, you get to the national elections in 1920, the Republican Party has brought its progressives to heel, or at least made them know that they're not particularly welcome in their party. There's a lowering of taxes, there's a withdrawing from regulation of business, there's a, a cracking down on labor unions, and in general the adoption of what we would, would fairly well recognize as anti-progressive politics. People felt those changes a return to growing inequality, workers stripped of some of the leverage they'd had a decade earlier. So there were pent-up demands for change even before the Great Depression hit. When it did... What did you sense about the ordinary guy, the guy on the street? Uh, was his attitude... Studs Terkel around 1970 in a conversation with a physician, Dr. Louis Andreas, who had this memory from the early 30s in Chicago. You'll probably remember a very ominous march down Michigan Avenue one day, a very silent, straggling march, you know, of the unemployed. Nobody said anything. They're just, just a dark mass of people flowing down that street. And I think in their minds then was this point, uh, the point will be reached where we're not going to take this. I remember, the I remember particularly because of the silence. This was a glum march. There was no waving of banners. No enthusiasm, but uh, an undercurrent of desperation, and I would say uh, uh, maybe of uh, uh, uncrystallized intent uh, to do something about it if it, all this didn't stop. A leader of the Federation of Labor, Edward McGrady, told a congressional committee in 1932 that if the government didn't take bold action to respond to the Depression, the problem would not be saving the hungry. Instead, he said, the cry next winter will be to save this government of the United States. So by the time Roosevelt took office, he had a clear mandate. He famously launched a flurry of programs with three and four letter acronyms. The TVA, CWA, PWA and WPA, the CCC. Subsidies for farmers, public works programs that would eventually put millions of people to work bank restrictions and deposit insurance to protect people's money. A little later, the social security system and cash welfare for needy families. And major new labor laws, guaranteeing workers the right to bargain collectively and providing federal oversight to protect workers' right to organize. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. My friends, since my annual message to the Congress on January 4th last... In radio broadcasts billed as fireside chats, Roosevelt spoke to the American people in frank detail, giving updates, making clear he was trying things, not all of which would work, explaining his plans and the philosophy behind them. In our efforts for recovery, we have avoided on the one hand the theory that business should and must be taken over into an all-embracing government. We have avoided, on the other hand, the equally untenable theory that it is an interference with liberty to offer reasonable help when private enterprise is in need of help. The course we have followed fits the American practice of government a practice of taking action step by step, of regulating only to meet concrete needs, a practice of courageous recognition of change. His impulses, probably, at least at the outset of his political career, were orthodox. That is to say, he didn't have any fairly radical ideas about how society should be constructed. Roosevelt's dramatic expansion of government in response to the Depression got him called socialist by some business leaders. But he'd been born into wealth, money his ancestors made as merchants and investors in things like real estate, coal, and railroads. His wife, Eleanor, who was also a distant cousin, had a bigger trust fund than he did. But Rauschway says FDR was deeply read in history and economics, and he seems to have been guided by a sincere personal ethic. He was deeply Christian, 
he was uh, Episcopalian, and uh, he took that very seriously throughout his life, as far as we can tell. He strewed throughout his speeches references to uh, the scriptures. And it's probably, as far as we can say, that there is such a thing, a moral core to Roosevelt's politics. My program is based upon this simple moral principle. The welfare and the soundness of a nation depends first upon what the great mass of the people wish and need, and secondly, whether or not they are getting it. What do the people of America want more than anything else? In my mind, two things. Work. Work with all the moral and spiritual values that go with work. And with work, a reasonable measure of security. Security for themselves and for their wives and children. Work and security. These are more than words. They are more than facts. They are the spiritual values, the true goal towards which our efforts of reconstruction should lead. You can still get an argument about who Roosevelt was, a traitor to his class, a closet socialist attacking American capitalism, or just the opposite, a loyal plutocrat doing just enough for the suffering, pitchfork-wielding people during a grave crisis to save the system that benefited him and his rich friends. Or neither. There's not a lot of insight into his inmost self. So when you ask about his motives and his inner thoughts, it's very difficult to get hold of that. Anyway, what matters more than Roosevelt's deepest thinking is the pressure he faced from all sides. Corporate leaders and pro-business politicians on the right, organized labor and masses of suffering poor people on the left. And FDR had people with more progressive instincts close by. People like his agriculture secretary, Henry Wallace, and his wife, Eleanor. She traveled the country visiting needy people and championing housing programs, she met with African-American leaders, wrote a daily syndicated newspaper column, and broadcast her own radio show. Our guest today has been described as one of the 50 greatest women in American history. She is Mrs. Mary McLeod Bethune. A reflection of Eleanor's unabashed progressivism. Here's a broadcast she did with the black educator and civil rights leader Mary McLeod Bethune in 1949. We now seek to create or the creation of still greater areas of cooperation between the women of all the races of mankind for the preservation of universal peace and justice. Thank you, Mary McLeod Bethune. None of us certainly can say that as yet we have perfect democracy, nor even the democracy that Abraham Lincoln and others of our great men envisioned. But I, for one, am proud that our country could produce a Mrs. Bethune. One thing is clear about Franklin Roosevelt and his goals for the New Deal, says Eric Rauschway. FDR came to believe that a real shift in economic and political power was needed in American society. And that led to genuine hostility between him and many corporate and conservative leaders. Roosevelt was going to see that wages went up. Roosevelt was going to see that workers could unionize. Roosevelt was going to do things not only in the interest of the people who had always had wealth and power, put them back where they were, but also kind of shift the balance a bit in favor of those who had not had wealth and power and influence before. And the more that became clear, uh, the more the more conservative elements of American life turned against him. And Roosevelt's response was to say, no, I really do mean this. I really am going to keep pushing in this direction. It's, it's hard to say, you know, whether he would necessarily have done quite the same 
when he started out in 33 as he ended up doing by the time you get to 36 when he famously or infamously says, you know, those folks hate me and I welcome their hatred. These economic royalists complain that we seek to overthrow the institutions of America. What they really complain of is that we seek to take away their power. Roosevelt was determined to give at least some more power to people who didn't have it. But America's hierarchies were many, and they were stubborn. One president in the 1930s, even one as powerful and popular as FDR, would not or could not dismantle them all. The New Deal helped some people of every shade and background, but it didn't help people equally. It's definitely left in place. Uh, the racial hierarchy is left in place during the New Deal. My name is Sibel uh, Fox. I'm a professor of sociology at the University of California, Berkeley. I wrote a book called Three Worlds of Relief, which examines the incorporation of blacks, Mexican-Americans, and immigrant, European immigrants into the early American social welfare system, essentially from the progressive era to the New Deal. Seabell Fox studied the very distinct experiences of those three groups as they sought the help that so many people needed. In the 1920s and 30s, much more than today, these big demographic groups mostly lived in different geographies and political and labor conditions. Seventy percent of black Americans lived in the South in 1930, most working on farms and plantations in the Jim Crow debt peonage system. The vast majority of Mexican-Americans and resident Mexican immigrants lived in the Southwest. They also worked in agriculture, but as migrants, not tied to a single employer. Most new arrivals from Europe landed in northeastern and midwestern industrial cities. Especially before the New Deal, Fox says, it helped a lot to be European when seeking relief. Any kind of European, including those like Poles, Greeks, and Italians, who were not considered the right kind of white by WASPy or Nordic Americans. Southern and Eastern European immigrants definitely suffered from racial discrimination on the basis of the fact that they were Italian or Southern Italian. Jews, of course, suffered just anti-Semitism uh, and race-based discrimination. Uh, but when whiteness was at issue, uh, they were nearly always included within the context of white. And that matters for the story in part because social workers uh, in the United States during this period imagined them as capable of assimilation, of turning into uh, Americans, if not in the first generation, then in the second generation. Sibel says white relief workers went out of their way to offer help to these immigrants, regardless of their immigration status. So even though public opinion was against them, they still had wide access to the social safety net. Things were different, she found, for Mexican immigrants and even Mexican Americans, especially during the early Hoover years of the Depression, in places like California, Arizona, and Colorado. What would happen essentially is Mexicans would, would, like everyone else, were kind of in desperate need of assistance during the early years of the Great Depression. They would go to the, you know, Los Angeles Department of Charities, and instead of offering them food or cash assistance as they would do with uh, white Americans or even European immigrants, they would offer them a train ticket instead to Mexico. In the early Depression years, Los Angeles charity officials called in the Federal Immigration Service to expel Mexican people applying for relief. Cibel says up to half of those pressured onto trains for Mexico were U.S. citizens, children of immigrants born in the U.S. Uh, and they didn't really care very much about their citizenship or even legal status. They just wanted them gone. They saw them as racially unassimilable and overly dependent on relief. Before the New Deal, it was not unusual for Mexican workers in the Southwest to get sporadic help from local relief agencies and charities, 
usually between picking seasons. But that was never the case for black people in the Southeast. The southern landowners who employed black families to work their farms made sure of that. Yeah, southern planters saw relief both before the Great Depression but also afterwards as a threat to their system of race relations in the South but also to their uh, labor supply. Uh, they felt like if other forms of assistance were available to black Americans that they would not stay working as tenant farmers or sharecroppers. And so both before the Great Depression and during it, they did whatever they could to try to make sure uh, that benefits were lower than could be provided by uh, working as tenant farmers or sharecroppers, but also that uh, black Americans would be excluded from uh, any of these benefits wherever they had the power to do so. And Southern planners had a lot of political power. So black people in the South got almost no help before Roosevelt ramped up the New Deal. Afterwards? You know, there was kind of a great promise, actually, with the election of FDR. The early federal uh, relief efforts all had non-discrimination clauses. And so relief administrators, federal relief administrators, were not supposed to discriminate on the basis of race or color status. Uh, or also citizenship, nationality, uh, and religion. If the federal government had lived up to that promise, that would have been a radical change. But the Roosevelt administration exerted only so much control over the programs. Members of Congress insisted that most of the New Deal programs be administered at the local level. In all these construction projects, local labor is employed, and wherever possible, the raw materials are obtained from quarries in the immediate vicinity. How big is the WPA road program? In its first 18 months of operation, the mileage end-to-end would have stretched five times around the Earth. The New Deal's public works programs famously put millions of men to work in the 1930s, allowing them to feed themselves and their families. Tens of thousands of black men got those jobs. For example, 5% of the men employed by the CCC, the Civilian Conservation Corps, were black. They worked in segregated crews. This was better than the near-total exclusion of black people from social welfare programs before the New Deal. But Fox says if the system were fair, black men would have gotten a lot more than 5% of the jobs. They represented 10% of the nation. So just to be, um, you know, kind of represented equally in terms of population numbers, but since their need would have been so much greater, um, they should have been, you know, 15 or 20% of CCC workers. But they're really uh, excluded from access to the most generous kind of pieces of the early social welfare system. The New Dealers also took some steps to change the way the U.S. government had treated Native Americans. The federal public works programs hired some Native people and built roads, schools, and hospitals on reservations. In 1934, Congress passed the Indian Reorganization Act, known as the Indian New Deal. That law began to reverse the federal policy of forced assimilation, giving back to tribes more control over their natural and cultural resources. We can never insure 100% of the population against 100% of the hazards and vicissitudes of life, but we have tried to frame a law which will give some measure of protection to the average citizen and to his family against the loss of a job and against poverty-stricken old age. The birth of the American social welfare system is really, the modern uh, American social welfare system uh, really starts in 1935 uh, with the passage of the Social Security Act. Maybe the single biggest legacy of the New Deal is the old age insurance provided by Social Security. It would be paid for with workers' contributions and a tax on employers. Poverty was rampant among older Americans, and Social Security would go a long way toward solving that. But the program did not include everyone at first. Black and Latino people were excluded disproportionately. This is not because there were race-based exclusions written into the law, but because there were occupational restrictions that excluded agricultural and domestic workers 
from the benefits of Social Security and unemployment insurance. The effect was to exclude uh, the majority of blacks and Mexicans from access to these generous social insurance benefits. So in 1940, about six in 10 white Americans worked in jobs that made them eligible for Social Security, compared with only 40% of Mexican Americans and 35% of black Americans. It's become conventional wisdom that racism was behind these exclusions, and that Southern segregationists in Congress insisted that farm and domestic workers not be included in Social Security. But the evidence doesn't seem to support that claim when it comes to the old age insurance program itself. The two main architects of Roosevelt's New Deal programs, Francis Perkins and Harry Hopkins, wanted to make Social Security universal from the start. But European countries had excluded domestic and farm workers from similar programs based on the idea that those workers were harder to tax and administer. Roosevelt officials, including his Treasury Secretary, Henry Morgenthau, argued for doing the same as the Europeans, and Congress agreed without much debate. The effect was to exclude disproportionately more black and brown people, though most of the people who were excluded from Social Security were white. The act was amended to include domestic and agricultural workers in the 1950s. So a lot did not change as a result of the New Deal, but a lot did. And there's plenty of evidence that things did change because regular people took action beyond casting votes. The worry that people might rise up clearly moved Roosevelt and other government leaders, but activism by working people had an impact on corporate leadership too. Here, a former General Motors worker, Bob Stinson, is telling Studs Terkel about a major strike at a Chevrolet plant in Flint, Michigan in 1937. It was part of a historic 44-day sit-down strike at several GM facilities. That was a knockdown, drag-out fight between the tear gas that the police used and the nuts and bolts that the striker used. It was hell to pay. <laughs> so that's what we call the Battle of Bull Run. Finally, they, the police left. That was the beginning of UAW. Right? That's when Mr. Knudsen put his name to a piece of paper and says the General Motors Corporation recognizes the UAW CIO as a bargaining agent for the employees in those plants in which they have a majority. Until that time, until that moment. We were non-people. We didn't even exist. The Workers' Alliance when people were evicted, what did they do? A lot of, they were put them they, back and the they wanted to put so them back where they come out. If hmm? they wanted to, put them back and they wanted to come out. Well, can you describe some of those? Willie Jeffries was a union official in Chicago. She told Turkle about a socialist organization made up mostly of black and Polish people in the city. The group would spring into action when they heard a landlord had evicted someone during the Depression had thrown their belongings out on the curb and turned off the gas and electricity. The men would connect those lights and go to the uh, hardware and, and get a piece of gas pipe, connect that stove back, put the furniture in there, and we'd arrange it back just like you had, and it don't look like you've been out boobs. Then we see then, that landlord couldn't bother them again for 90 days. That was it, I see. See, he see. didn't bother them no more for 90 days. And at the end of that 90 days, then he's glad to keep us in here. Which trouble. <laughs> the most common narrative about the New Deal goes something like this. Roosevelt's multi-pronged response to the Great Depression held off the angriest potential responses from the American people and saved the nation's political and economic systems by reforming them, somewhat. Then came World War II, with Roosevelt still in office. Even more than the New Deal, massive government spending to mobilize for the war ended the Great Depression and brought jobs and prosperity. Stir in a surge of patriotism behind the war effort, and by the time the war is won in 1945, the idea that American democracy or American capitalism were gravely threatened feels like a distant memory. The American project of 1776 and 1876 lives on, more or less intact, 
but updated and modified. So, Chenjerai. Hey, John. It seems fair, I think, and actually important to say that the New Deal brought some real change. You know, changes that made things better for a lot of people. I think that's right. You know, I see people now who are trying to make an argument for a broader and bolder political vision and the courage that it takes to achieve that vision. And I mean, I think they cite the New Deal for a reason. Right. I mean, look at the things that are in it. Minimum wage, abolishing child labor, 40 hour work week, Social Security. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, right. Yeah. The the protection of uh, collective bargaining rights, uh, those bank banking regulations. No deposit insurance, the, the the jobs programs. Yes, massive jobs program. I mean, support for the arts. So I think all those things are, you can't dismiss those. And then even if you look at this sort of language in Roosevelt's speech where he talks about the second Bill of Rights, I mean, I think that's something that is really important to look at. Yeah, you're talking about a speech he gave uh, near the end of his life, and the, uh, actually at the beginning of his fourth term as president in 1944, um, where he called for a second Bill of Rights. And I, I would just suggest that people who, who aren't, don't know about that just look it up and see what he was calling for. It's pretty striking. And, and you know, today looks like a pipe dream. And, of course, he would die the following year, and uh, the, the second Bill of Rights did not happen, to say the least. Right. But, you know, to me, when we talk about Roosevelt and people like him and things like the New Deal, we have a habit of talking about them like they just originated in some man's mind or like his, you know, his cabinet. Yeah. And I think that that's a that's a mistake. One, because it's not true. It's not how things happen. And two, because it gives us the idea that all, you know, all important changes made by great men, kind of a great man theory of history. Mm-hmm. So I think with the with the New Deal, what you have to look at is a lot of the good things that happened in the New Deal were really responses to ideas that came from radical movements, which had been struggling and pushing for those for years. It's a long history of radical struggle before Roosevelt. And I want to be clear, Roosevelt himself was not a radical. Right. I mean, I, I would I guess I would describe him as a capitalist humanitarian. <laughs> that seems about right. Uh, yes, he was committed to both of those things, to capitalism, to essentially preserving the way that the country operated economically. And a, and a genuine humanitarian vision, wanting to make life better for a lot of people. But I know that he was hearing from more radical leaders he was you know quite directly yeah i mean so for example two weeks after he was inaugurated he brought in this socialist preacher named norman thomas and another socialist leader morris hilquit right into the white house right and so they sat with roosevelt and he was listening to their propositions for how they were going to deal with the great depression and you know they started talking about nationalizing the banks and they also looked at his jobs program and they criticized that proposal basically wondering whether it was just going to mean a whole bunch of low, really low wage work, which they had already been fighting against. Mm. So, you know, he heard those things and then, but he ultimately rejected that banking proposal and kind of ignored the uh, jobs complaint as well. So he was kind of, uh, you know, he was taking ideas and, and, uh, and these things are complicated, but I get a sense from some scholars that it would be fair to say that the new deal adopted ideas that were out there that were that were being offered by by more radical people and pretty inevitably watered them down somewhat right sort of co-opted them and and moderated those proposals yeah so you know earlier in the episode we talked about sorting out the democratic versus anti-democratic forces as they played out in the new deal and here's one really clear example just take the Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938, mm-hmm. right? That includes like the child labor stuff, you know, minimum wage, 40 hour work week, all that really important stuff. Who introduces it? It's Hugo Black, 
who's a labor activist and former lawyer for the mine workers, right? Mm-hmm. Is a person, and he introduces that in 1932, and he's just fighting to get it passed all the way till 1938. Mm. I should mention as a side note that he was also, Black was briefly in the Klan. <laughs> Oop. Um, Yes. Yeah. Just temporarily. People are yeah. <laughs> people. People are complicated. People evolve sometimes. Yes. We're not defending that, but the point is that who emerges right as an opponent of things like child labor? It's the Supreme Court, and they kind of roll out like a states' rights argument. And so Roosevelt and Black are pushing to get this thing through, and they can't even do it. And ultimately, until Black actually gets on the Supreme Court in 1937 and then they can start to change it and, and get that passed. Wow. And that brings me to a point, John. Yes. Can you, do you think you can get me on the Supreme Court? I know you have, <laughs> I know you know like a lot of people and white people. I, I, know, I know some white people. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, well actually I hereby nominate you publicly. Okay. And, uh, and then now we can see if I have as much clout uh, as the Federalist Society. Oh, yeah, because that's... In putting people on the Supreme Court. But, I mean, also outside of the White House, there was forces that were kind of pushing and leading to what would ultimately become the New Deal. I mean, and there was like a certain kind of urgency to some of the organizing that was happening, particularly between 1933 and 1936, kind of like Roosevelt's first term. Yeah. I mean, people were shutting stuff down. You look at there was the Chevrolet strike in Toledo. The longshoremen had a dock strike in 1934 that was very important. And of course, you had black organizing in the South against Jim Crow lynching and tenant farming. Some of that was in response to the first New Deal proposals. Hmm. In fact, some scholars argue, right, that like those things push Roosevelt. But what ultimately got legislated were things that were distract that were discouraging the most radical parts of that struggle. Hmm. Can you say more about what you mean by that or an example? In labor, for example, it seemed that there was a push toward mediation, you know, hmm. working with management and negotiation in that mode without doing without the sit-ins and the kind of radical uprisings and some of the even more spontaneous uprisings that that had happened, so yeah. things like that. Okay. The, the larger point that I think you're making here um, takes me back to our last episode when we were talking about the Civil War and, and um, that the radical abolitionists had been calling uh, for emancipation for decades. And then the Civil War created the conditions where a moderate like Lincoln finally sees that, you know, it's going to help his agenda, namely trying to win the war and that it's in the really in the interests of the country to adopt that position. Yeah. Right. So so there's something similar at work here that in a if in a big enough crisis ideas that powerful people have su- successfully categorized as wildly radical and outside the mainstream suddenly look reasonable and even necessary, right? Yes. And you know, I also think it's important to talk about race when we talk about the New Deal, you have to talk about that. And it's going back to the beginning of the episode. You know, we heard from Clifford Burke mm-hmm. and he was kind of saying, you know, the, the Great Depression wasn't really a depression for black people in a way because we, we were already born in depression. And in the same way, you know, a lot of scholars have said that the New Deal wasn't really a new deal for most black people. Mm. And I think that's important. But. It's important to talk about how that happened because I think it's sometimes more complicated than how we think of it, particularly if we're thinking of it through the lens of just like explicit attitudes and bias. Yeah, there were definitely ways in which straight up racism was was at play. Um, yes. And, and we discussed, we gave a couple examples of that in the episode. The fact that, they, you know, a really key thing to understand is the fact that a lot of the New Deal programs were administered locally. Uh, and that gave people an opportunity in those places to discriminate against black and brown people. Right. But when we talk about what was actually in the policies for black and brown people, it gets complicated. Like a lot of times people talk about the the Social Security exclusion, the fact that black and brown people weren't able to access that benefit. 
And for years, I kind of thought like, oh, this was because there was just like this racial veto. I mean, there's a lot of scholarship that says that a lot of people assume that that's true. And it kind of makes sense. It's intuitively right. Yeah. But in my study, what I found is it doesn't really hold up when you really understand how that process of legislation proceeded. And so I'm not going to go all the way into the weeds on that. But, John, it would be great if we could put some of those links up for people to check out. Yeah, we'll put up a link to an article that that you found that I think really pretty persuasively debunks a more kind of simplistic view of of how that went down. And I think this is really important if we want to understand the mechanisms of what could be called structural racism. I mean, a big part of why that exclusion played out the way it did for black and brown workers was that they were already in a more marginalized position in the economy. So when whole categories of workers got excluded, they were more likely to be excluded. Yeah. That's also included a lot of white people too, though, right? I mean, disproportionately black and brown people, but a lot of white people, 15 million white people actually were excluded. I think it's also important to say that a lot of the changes that came from the New Deal that were really advances for working people and poor people, that they were going to be rolled back a few decades later which, by the way, is something that we'll get to in a future episode. That's right. And, I mean, I think, you know, this this is a point about about Roosevelt and people like him. I mean, Roosevelt, I think, was, to me, was a sincere humanitarian. But what the New Deal shows is that it's not just about a humanitarian impulse and having good ideas. You have to have the right analysis of economics you have to empower movements from below that can keep pressing and keep working on this like an engine until things are really transformed at a deeper level and 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 it's that's inevitable if you really want to have deeper democracy Hmm. speaking of movements coming in episode seven Mississippi 1964, a major episode in the modern civil rights movement and the fight for democracy. America's third founding? Next time. By the way, Langston Hughes wrote the poem from which we borrowed the title of our series. The poem is titled, Let America Be America Again, during the Depression and the New Deal years, 1935. Our editor on the series is Loretta Williams. Music consulting and production help from Joe Augustine of Narrative Music. Our theme song, The Underside of Power, is by Algiers. Other music this season by John Eric Cotta, Eric Naveau, and Lucas Bewin. Thanks to the Studs Terkel Radio Archive at WFMT, the Franklin D. Roosevelt Presidential Library and Museum, and to North Carolina Public Radio WUNC for use of its Durham studios. Seen on Radio is distributed by our friends at PRX. The show comes to you from the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University.